special welcome to a couple of guests, uh, a former student of mine from Nebraska from class 10 years ago, and a former client of mine from uh, the uh, Buddhist temple down on uh, Canal Street. So welcome. It thrills me that you uh, all are uh, here this morning. Um, before, and also, everybody make sure you have a handout, because we're going to be talking about that in, uh, in just a moment. Um, so somebody will pass those around, I think, Chris. Uh, before I get into the substance of what we're going to be talking about, I'd like to explain why it matters, and thus why I chose this as one of our topics. Because this is a, what we're going to be talking about is the separation of church and state uh, in America. And this is one of the most misunderstood principles of all of constitutional law. Uh, something we read about in the newspapers all of the time, but it is grossly misunderstood. And so that's really what I'm going to be talking about. Because to hear the sort of popular account of this, the separation of church and state is, is, a, is a sort of anti-religious or hostile to religious view, which is designed to keep religion at, a, at arm's length from anything having to do with public affairs. Now, to be a little bit more precise about this, uh, when you look at our first amend, the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, it begins, it has two parts to it. It says, uh, uh, it has, it says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So we speak of the establishment clause and we speak of the free exercise clause. And it's usually the establishment clause that people refer to as the separation of church and state. Now, <clears throat> even the Supreme Court has not recently, but many times in the recent past, made exactly the error I'm going to be talking about this morning, uh, which is, so they frequently have said that these two parts to the First Amendment are, quote, in tension with each other. And what do they mean by that? I think they mean that the free exercise clause protects the right of religious people to practice their religion, but the establishment clause uh, is a kind of a counterweight to make sure that religion doesn't become too powerful or dominant in our society. And it's often thought, historically erroneously, but often thought that the free exercise clause is there to because of the interests of religious people, but that the establishment clause is a product of the secularistic enlightenment, which is you know, the other side of the coin. Right. And so it is the establishment clause, separation of church and state, uh, which is um, the basis for decisions like the school prayer decisions, the uh, decisions prohibiting uh, government funds from going to religious schools, decisions that, you know, the Ten Commandments or nativity scenes or uh, that sort of thing have to be dismantled on public property and so forth. So. Uh, and, and so that is the public image of what the Establishment Clause uh, is all about. And what the, 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 uh, the, the moral of the story this morning, and I'm going to be talking about history now, uh, but the moral of the history that we're going to be talking about is that, in fact, 
the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause were advocated by the same people uh, at, the, at the founding, that those were the most evangelical uh, elements of American society, and that both establishment separation and free exercise had as their purpose to protect the independence of religious life from government control. Right? So it, at a time when there was an established church, right, the Church of England, don't think of that as the government promoting religion. It was the government controlling religion. The Church of England was like a bureaucracy of the royal government in Britain. What it meant was that the king and later parliament would be able to choose the leadership of the church. The articles of faith of the Church of England were actually adopted by act of parliament. Right? Uh, the uh, Even King James Bible... Uh, do you know? Uh, do you know what the real? The, uh, if you open up to the title page of your King James Bible, do you know what the real? What it's really called? The authorized version. Well, who authorized it? The King of England authorized it. That's King James. He didn't write a word of it, right? But it was there by legal authority, and it was especially bad on this side of the Atlantic because the Church of England prior to independence was a rather sleepy, um, desiccated uh, belief system. And all of the most fervent uh, believers in America were dissenters from the established church. And so when we disestablished religion, we said, we're not going to have something like the Church of England in America the main reason for that was so that the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and even the Episcopalians would be able to, uh, uh, to, to have a vibrant, independent, autonomous church in which they could preach the gospel rather than having to conform to, to the dictates of the state. By the way, I say even the Episcopalians. Episcopalians are the descendants of the Church of England but after independence, they reformed themselves as the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States. They, too, became a free church. And they, too, had, were part of the Second Great Awakening, which was a religious sort of efflorescence in the first part of the 19th century. So that's the bottom line. Now I'm going to get into um, uh, some detail. Uh, here and I, I hope you'll bear with me. I hope this isn't too technical, but I think this is really interesting. Uh, so the fundamental point here is it, it begins with the Protestant Reformation, just like last time we talked about the Protestant Reformation and the issues of individual rights. Protestant Reformation is, if anything, even more so about the separation of church and state. Because what, remember the essence of the difference, we talked about this last time, the essence of the difference between Protestantism and Catholicism was that Protestants believe in sola scriptura, the Bible alone, which meant that each individual believer is able to open up the Bible and read it and understand it for themselves. Of course, we have professional help like from people like Jason. Right? But Jason isn't a spiritual authority 
right? He's a teacher. His title is teaching elder, right? He's, it's not, he's not like the Pope, right, who has uh, authority, right? He is just there to help each individual Protestant to understand what the Bible means. And what the Protestants would say is that if you follow what somebody else tells you the Bible is saying, the Pope in Rome, right? If you follow what the Pope in Rome tells you the Bible is saying, you're not following the Bible. And you're actually um, violating your duty to God to read and understand uh, the Bible for yourself and your own conscience. So one of the rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation was God alone is Lord of the conscience, right? not the church. But there's a corollary to that. Right? Parliament isn't Lord of the church either. The king isn't Lord of the church either. For precisely the same sola scriptura theological reason that uh, we don't recognize the authority of the Pope in Rome, early Protestants came to recognize that they couldn't recognize the authority of kings and parliaments over the, the Bible either. Fair. Now, now, I should hasten to say it took a little bit of time for this, uh, but this is what those Puritans and, uh, and pilgrims were doing in England when they had to flee to Holland first and then uh, to uh, the shores of the New World in order to be able to worship. That's what they were doing, is they were refusing to accept the authority of the king and the parliament over their, uh, over their worship. Right? So that's the, the sort of deeper background. Uh, but what about the immediate uh, impetus for, uh, uh, for the separation of church and state? Uh, the... Uh, the two statesmen at our founding who were uh, primarily responsible uh, for drafting and advocating and bringing about the, the addition of our religion clauses, establishment and free exercise, were James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, uh, both of Virginia, famous names, right? Now, religiously, Madison and Jefferson are a little different. Um, Madison, although he was born in a family of the Church of England, and he even had an uncle who later became a bishop in the new Protestant Episcopal Church, so he's an Anglican Episcopal by birth. Um, <clears throat> his parents, for reasons we do not know, uh, his parents sent him off uh, to the College of New Jersey, what we now call Princeton, which was a Presbyterian school. Uh, Princeton Seminary is still a leading pres a Presbyterian institution. Not only was this pre a Presbyterian school, it was the Presbyterian school. This was uh, uh, the Reverend John Witherspoon, the only clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence, Presbyterian minister, great intellectual leader, and Presbyterianism, uh, the intellectual side of Presbyterianism, uh, which is quite has a great distinguished record to it. Really, it, it, Princeton was the nerve center of this, and so Madison went off and studied under the leading Presbyterian 
meaning, and then it's also really the leading Protestant uh, clergyman in America. And he actually stayed an extra year after graduating and studied one-on-one with Witherspoon uh, on... uh, 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 on subjects of politics and moral ethics and so forth, right? So Madison must have been profoundly influenced by Witherspoon. Witherspoon. Now, <clears throat> we do not know much about Madison's personal religious views once he was an adult. Unlike Jefferson, he never wrote a word about what he actually believed. He t- regarded his religion as private. So we just don't know. But we know what his background was. Now, Jefferson is an entirely different kettle of fish. Um, If there is a representative of the secularistic enlightenment in early America, Jefferson would be it. Uh, So he broke from the church. Uh, He he wrote a lot about religion. And most of it is stuff we wouldn't much care for. He was a skeptic. Uh, now, he was not really an atheist. What he really was was an anti-Trinitarian who did not believe in the divinity of Christ. When he was president, he this is so remarkable. When he was president, he actually spent time doing his own version of the Gospels, which you can buy in a bookstore. It's called Jefferson's Bible. And so what he does is he takes... Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John puts them together in a kind of synoptic single gospel and cuts out all of the miracles and all of any claim of divinity. So he turns Jesus into a moral teacher. So that is Jefferson. Okay, so the, and these two men, Madison and Jefferson, who lived very close to each other in uh, Virginia, were uh, close political allies and both uh, champions of free exercise and disestablishment uh, in America. But what were the arguments that they made? And this is what I want to impress upon you, because this isn't just biography. It's what did they say they were doing? And that's where this uh, handout comes in. In, um, in, in. in 1784, in Virginia... Uh, there was a proposal championed by Patrick Henry, another one of our great uh, uh, founding leaders, uh, to create a kind of established church in Virginia. Now, what they were worried about is this, that uh, prior to independence, uh, the Church of England was tax-supported. Along comes the Revolutionary War, Many of the churches of Virginia were burned down. Most of the pulpits in Virginia were empty. And after the War of Independence ended successfully in 1783, uh, you know, Virginia was a religious wasteland, right? And they believed, even Jefferson believed, they all believed that to have good Republican, meaning small r, citizens of a republic, nothing to do with the modern Republican Party, hasten to add, Uh, nothing to do with the modern Democratic Party either. Uh, Good Republican citizens needed to have public virtue, and the only source for that is uh, is the teaching of the church. I, I don't have time, but I could quote you chapter and verse proving that, but they all believe this. 
And so how are we going to build up a new generation of good Republican citizens when the churches are burned down, the pulpits are empty, and there's no money? What's more, the uh, Christians in Virginia had been accustomed to having the government paying for things, and so they didn't have a, they weren't accustomed to putting money in the, in the collection plate, and so it really didn't look good. And so, here, so Patrick Henry's idea was this. He did not want an established church like the Church of England. So what he did, or what he proposed to do, was to impose a religious tax so that everyone would pay a fairly small, but you know, a tax, uh, and then they would designate the tax to go to the religion of their choice. So if you're an Episcopalian, you support the Episcopal Church. If you're a Presbyterian, you support the Presbyterian Church. There were no synagogues in Virginia at the time. There was not even a Catholic Church in Virginia until the mid-1790s. So these actually turn out to be all Protestant churches, right? Uh, uh, but so you support the church of your, of, your, uh, of your own choice. Now, if that seems like a strange system, I'd like to point out Germany today has a system like that. We think of Germany as being a, a free country, so this is not so inconsistent with, with Western um, European uh, values. But this was the proposal, and uh, it had a lot of support. And you can see the logic of this. It's a way to get religion back on its footing again, uh, not actually because of the spiritual value of it, but because of its civic value as an inculcator of public virtue needed for this new republic. Right? Uh, Jefferson is often France as the ambassador, so he's not there at the moment. James Madison leads the opposition to Patrick Henry's proposal, and he circulates a petition, uh, what he called a memorial and remonstrance, but that just is a fancy word for a petition. And what I've given you here, the top half of the page, is the first paragraph of Madison's memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments, which is to say against Patrick Henry's bill uh, for uh, the support of religion in, uh, uh, in Virginia. And what I would just like to take you through the arguments of this so you can see uh, how this Protestant teaching that I was talking about a moment ago uh, is, uh, is reflected in Madison's uh, argument. Uh, so you know, he begins by saying that it's a fundamental and undeniable truth that religion, and by the way, note he defines what religion is. It's a very interesting definition. Uh, it's the religion or the duty, re what religion is the duty we owe to our creator and, and the manner of discharging it. Right? And so that's what re religion is. And that he says it can all direct, be directed only by reason and conviction not by force or violence. Right, so God alone is Lord of the conscience. Right? You cannot, if anybody is directing religion by force or violence, then, and you follow that, you're not following God, you are following that person. Right? And that is, according to Protestant teaching, that is actually a form of idolatry. Uh, when he says reason and conviction, I think we actually see here that he's arguing from both an enlightenment and also uh, a deeply 
actually Reformed Protestant Calvinist idea that conviction is a religious idea, reason is somewhat of an enlightenment uh, uh, idea. Um, and, and, it, and, and thus it has to be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. And it's the right of every man to exercise it, that is religion, as reason and conviction may dictate. Uh, and then this is interesting. The right is in its nature an unalienable right. Uh, what does unalienable mean? We see that word also in the Declaration of Independence. Do you know what an unalienable? Do you know what it means to alienate something? That means to dispose of it, usually to sell it, to get rid of it. An unalienable right is the opposite. It's one that we cannot give up. It's one that human beings must have. We have lots of rights we can get rid of, right? I mean, if you're charged with a crime, you can waive your right to a jury trial. Uh, if you have property, you can sell it. There are all kinds of rights we have that are quite important, but, we, that, but they're alienable. <clears throat> the right of freedom of religion, Madison says, is unalienable. You can't, and, so why? Why is it unalienable? It is unalienable for, and, and he then gives two different reasons. The first of that which comes straight out of Enlightenment thinkers like uh, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. That is, it's unalienable because the opinions of men, depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds, cannot follow the dictates of, uh, of other men. Right? When he says cannot, he doesn't mean should not. He means cannot. Like, if I believe something, you know, it doesn't matter what force is being applied to my body. I may be being put on the rack and I may say anything, but it's not going to persuade me. Right? Force does not persuade. <clears throat> Note that this is an argument true of religious conviction, but this is actually true of any opinion. Right? If I think uh, uh, that the world is flat, you're not, you might be able to persuade me with evidence, but you're not going to persuade me with thumbscrews. Right? It doesn't really matter what the opinion is, uh, and so this is actually not just an argument for freedom of religion. This is an argument for freedom of opinion more broadly. Uh, and then he gives a second reason. He says, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, because what is here a right towards men is a duty toward the creator. Right? It is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such only as he believes acceptable to him, that is, to the creator. Again, that is this Protestant argument that's been around since the Reformation. It is not just our right to worship God in accordance with, what, with our own reading of the Bible, right? our own conscience and conviction. It is our duty to God. Right? If we worship God according to somebody else, Pope in Rome, King of England, Parliament, if we worship according to somebody else, <coughs> we are not worshiping God. Our duty is to worship God as we understand God's will to be because that is the essence of the, of the righteous life, is to do what we believe uh, God has uh, in uh, in store uh, for us. So it's our duty to render him such homage and such only, 
right? As is dictated by conscience and conviction. Nothing else, right? And so this is a, this is not an enlightenment argument. It depends upon the authority of God. This is an argument from the sovereignty of God over each individual's uh, uh, conscience. This is a distinctively and I think authentically uh, a Christian, Protestant, uh, especially dissenting Protestant uh, a notion. Then he goes on to say that this duty, this duty to the creator is precedent, comes before, it comes before, it's precedent both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. So our duties to God arise before there's ever a government on earth, before there's a civil society on earth. God is first in terms of time, but also in terms of degree of obligation. So that if there is a conflict between duty to God and the obligations of civil society, our duties to God come first. Right? That's, uh, that is not what we're, what we're hearing from, the, from our secularist friends today. Right? That's exactly what's at stake in cases like you know, the, ba- the Baker case that's going to the Supreme Court about the baker who will not bake a cake for a same-sex marriage or the Hobby Lobby case or uh, many uh, cases from other religions too, like the Supreme Court's last religious freedom case or penultimate one in which a Muslim uh, won the right to wear a beard in accordance with, with what Muslim teaching is, even though he's in prison, uh, and the right of a member of the Native American church to, um, to use peyote as their sacrament. It's, not a, it's, a, it's a doctrine that comes from Christianity, but it is not one confined to Christianity, right? Because the argument here is that each individual person has the duty to God to worship in accordance with his own conscience and conviction, not with mine, not with yours, not with the legislature's, right? And that means that there are going to be people exercising their religion that are quite different from our own. We should feel free to persuade them. We should feel free to share the gospel with them. But we are not. We should celebrate their freedom to act on their own. And I think any time I see someone acting contrary, when there's pressure out in the world, and I see someone acting according to conscience, you know, my, my heart leaps, right? Even if I don't agree with them, right? These are people doing their duty to God as they see it. Right, maybe not maybe as I see it, but uh, equally uh, 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 to be uh, uh, celebrated, um, and uh, and and then he says, this is Madison continuing. Before any man can be considered as a member of civil society, he is first must be considered a subject of the governor of the universe. Right, we are we are not citizens of the United States first. We are first subjects. God. And when he uses the term governor of the universe, what he's trying to do here is use the broadest possible description for God, right? He's, he's saying this is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It, or not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a better way to put it. It's any person's conception of, uh, uh, of the ultimate authority, the, the governor of the, uh, of the universe. And and, and this was a term not, 
not just an enlightenment term, too. You may remember, uh, was it two times ago, I quoted to you a memorial from the backwoodsman of Ashfield, Massachusetts. Do you remember this? Uh, at the time of independence when they said, we have no governor. Remember G-O-V-I-N-E-R? Does anybody remember this? We have no governor but the governor of the universe. Right? So this is, uh, that's what they meant by the sovereignty of God above all else. And so the same thing that these backwoods Calvinist uh, believers are saying uh, is the same thing Madison is saying, and he's even using the same uh, language uh, for it. Um, so any member of civil society must do, you must enter civil society with a reservation of your duty uh, to the general authority uh, uh, and a saving of your allegiance to the universal sovereign. So when we form government, like with our constitution, right, it's our duty to reserve our ability to be able to, to, to uh, uh, do our duty to God. That's why it's unalienable, right? Because it's a duty to, uh, uh, to God. We don't have the right to give that one up, right? Uh, we therefore maintain that in matters of religion, no man's right is abridged by the institution of civil society, and religion is totally exempt from its cognizance, right? So... This is the true understanding of separation between church and state, right? That religion is exempt from the control of the state, right? And, and it follows from the premises of the Protestant Reformation. So that's Madison. And they vote down the, the Virginia uh, House of Burgesses debates this for over a year, and they vote down Patrick Henry's bill because this is an interference with the state, with the practice of religion. People should decide for themselves whether they're going to be supporting their church. Right? Religion should not be a matter of governmental compulsion. It should be a matter of voluntary uh, uh, practice. Right? And then having voted that down, Madison then goes into his back pocket and reintroduces a bill written by his friend Thomas Jefferson several years before that had just been sort of languishing out there. And this was a bill to end the establishment of religion in Virginia. Uh, remember, Virginia was, did have an established church right up until independence, and they never formally ended it. it was, and so this was uh, Jefferson's legislation that would just put a final and complete end uh, to the established church uh, in Virginia. And this is written by, again, Jefferson is not an Orthodox Christian by any estimation. Many people thought he was an atheist. I think that's not true. Uh, he was accused of being an atheist, uh, but he certainly was not, a, a, you know, he wasn't a churchgoer. He was not an Orthodox Christian by, uh, uh, by any means. But look at the argument here. Look how it begins. This is the beginning of Jefferson's bill. I've not plucked out of context, you know, just the most agreeable passage. This is how it starts. Well aware that Almighty God hath created the mind free. What kind of an argument is that, right? 
Well, I, it's, but it's a religious, it's an argument about what Almighty God has done, right? It's a, it's a religious argument. And, and I often mention this because there's this belief out in the land that it is illegitimate to make religious arguments on matters of public policy. You know, you shouldn't do that. That's sort of a violation between, of the separation between church and state. Well, I want you to know that the bill creating the separation of church and state begins with a religious argument. Right? Well aware that Almighty God hath created the mind free. Uh, I'm not going to go through each of this in the way I did before because we're running out of time. Uh, but he says that they are, it attempts to influence it by temporal, temporal punishments or burdens, in other words, by force, by governmental force, attempts to influence religion by governmental force, are a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. Right, so establishments of religion are contrary. His argument isn't that it's contrary to you know, some secular principle. It's contrary to the plan of the holy author of our religion, who being Lord of body and mind, right, yet chose not to propagate it by coercions on either as was in his almighty power to do. What's he talking about here? What passage of the Bible is this? Is, almost certainly on his mind. You know, isn't this the Garden of Eden? Right, so uh, God is Lord of body and mind. He, he could have told Adam and Eve, not, not just you shouldn't eat of the forbidden fruit, but he could have prevented them from eating from the... From, why didn't he prevent them from eating from the from the forbidden tree? Why didn't he do that? What, you know, this is the fall. This is the great catastrophe. He could have prevented it. Why didn't he prevent it, right? But there's, there's, I think there's an obvious reason why he didn't prevent it, right? He wanted human beings to be free. Why would he want human beings to be free? If they're not free, then their worship is worth nothing. It's only when you have free individuals who choose by conscience and conviction to worship God uh, that, uh, that the worship of God means anything. Unfree people, what they do doesn't really count for anything. And so uh, Jefferson is saying that God chose, God made people free not to, to either worship him or not according to their own uh, beliefs, right? And, and if God did this, if that's his plan for human beings to be able to worship freely and not under compulsion, well, the Virginia House of Burgesses has no business uh, uh, doing the opposite. So that's the argument. It goes on and so he says a lot of other interesting things, but I want to tell you one more story rather than going on through the rest of Jefferson's uh, 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 writing here. Uh, but I do hope you understand the point here, which is that the leading figures of the creation of separation of church and state in America, when they told us why they believed in this, 
we're making arguments that are based upon Christian and specifically dissenting Protestant uh, doctrine. Now, there's even a closer uh, sort of political connection between uh, the separation of church and state and uh, Christianity. Um, when the Constitution was first proposed by the drafters in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787, it did not contain a First Amendment. It didn't contain a Bill of Rights at all. No mention of freedom of religion. There were some proposals, uh, actually a, 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 a Jewish leader from Philadelphia made a proposal to add a religious freedom clause to the Constitution, but we didn't have any, there are no freedom clauses at all, right? The Constitution of 1787 is all about structure of government. It doesn't have a Bill of Rights. And this proved, and when, it went, when the Constitution was then presented to the people for ratification, the absence of a Bill of Rights, the absence of protections for fundamental freedoms, uh, was the biggest argument, the most potent argument against ratifying the Constitution. And of the various freedoms that people were concerned about, Freedom of religion was by far the most commonly mentioned. Freedom of the press was also very frequently mentioned. It's not, religion was not the only one, but freedom of religion was the most commonly uh, uh, mentioned of the, uh, of the freedoms n that need protection from government without anything. And the, um, the, the noisiest, loudest um, advocates of a religious freedom restoration or a provision uh, were the Baptists. Now, at the time, the Baptists were regarded, uh, they were not fully respectable uh, in America. They were, you know, they had these rallies out in the fields. They um, they, they were not, they, we Presbyterians sit in the pews and we are pe people of good order, right? Uh, uh, not so the Baptists, you know, they're, they're uh, hooting, hooting and hollering and, and their um, uh, ministers are often didn't go to college, right? They're filled with the spirit, but not, but they're not, they were not learned and the way Presbyterian ministers uh, uh, tended to be. They were the shock troops of this, uh, uh, of this movement. Right? Um, and, uh, and, and, and so James, back to James Madison. He wants to be a senator in the first, he wants, in, in the first government. And he's not elected senator because Patrick Henry controls the process. And so Patrick Henry isn't going to make James Madison who's a senator. So uh, instead, he's going to run for the House of Representatives because they're elected by you know, more specific places and, and not all under the control of one central or, uh, political organization. Uh, but his friend Patrick Henry uh, dominates the legislature and gerrymands him into a district in the western part of the state uh, where there was an overwhelming anti-federalist majority. These are the people who oppose the Constitution. These are, uh, you know, these are James Madison's, it's, it's a, let's just say it's a tough, very tough district uh, for James Madison to be thrown in. 
Interesting political footnote, by the way. His opponent in this election was James Monroe, later to succeed him as president. They later become close political allies, but at this point in time, uh, they are opponents. And so Monroe is running against Madison, and Monroe's leading uh, argument was uh, that Madison had championed this constitution without a Bill of Rights. Uh, one of the largest groups in the district were Baptists. This is out, you know, in Western Virginia. This is the Hill Country. This is; these are the the rubes. These are the deplorables of their day. Uh, and so, lots of Baptists, and uh, and they are not likely to support James Madison, who had produced a constitution without a Bill of Rights. And a National Baptist leader um, comes and visits Madison at his home. Uh, his name is John Leland. And the reports of this, it's not clear that this has actually happened, but there are, I think there's, there's indirect evidence that this may actually be true. Uh, and Leland reportedly told Madison that if he would only support a, a Bill of Rights with strong protections for separation of church and state, that, uh, that the Baptists would swing. Well, well, Madison did that. Madison announced his support for a Bill of Rights with, a, with strong religious freedom protections. And this we do know this is a fact because we have eyewitness accounts uh, this is, letter is read aloud. There's a big Baptist uh, revival meeting at the Rapidan Baptist Church on the shores of the Rapidan River in Virginia. And the Reverend George Eve is delivering the sermon. And the eyewitness account we have says that he, he spoke long, and long is capitalized. <laughs> if you know... Baptist preaching at all, you'll realize that when they capitalize the L, he must really have spoken long. <laughs> you know, and he spoke long on the contributions of James Madison uh, to the cause of religious liberty. The Baptist swing, Madison is elected to the first Congress, and then he is the champion of the Bill of Rights, including uh, the separation of church and state. All right. But um, next time one of our your friends and neighbors tells you that there's something wrong with religious people being active in politics. Tell them that story. We wouldn't have a separation between church and state if the Baptists had not been active in politics. And that rally, that revival meeting, turned into a political rally uh, for James Madison, and that's why we have the, uh, the Bill of Rights. Uh, again, I'd just like to repeat the moral of the story that I said at the beginning, right? These two halves of our First Amendment are not in tension with each other. They are uh, joined with each other, and the purpose of both of them is to ensure that the religious life of the United States is not under the control of the government, that f religion is something to be, uh, uh, is, is free and not uh, uh, and not controlled. So.